Welcome to Subtle Beast, everybody. I am your host, Folds, here with my main man and co-host, as always, Mr. Steve Apostolopoulos. How are you, brother? Folds, I feel good, man. How do you feel? I feel good. I feel I feel electric tonight. We have so many great things going on, so many exciting things. Um, I'm actually going to pass the mic over to Steve and uh, let him uh, share some of our big news. Yeah, man. Uh, we have a, a website that is under construction. And I'm, I'm guessing it's a, probably about two weeks out, uh, could be three weeks, but it is progressing very fast, my friend. Yeah, it totally is. Uh, if you want to just take a, a glimpse at it, it's not fully online. It'll probably tell you that it's in the works, but uh, SubtleBeastPodcast.com, you can go and uh, check out the, the future home of it. But it is going to be like a one-stop shop for anything Subtle Beast related. Uh, we're going to have videos out there. We're going to have interviews. We're going to have all of our podcasts, any link to our social media anything we're gonna have a ton of pictures we're gonna have it's gonna be a forum for like-minded people to come to and discuss the topics that we hold so dear subtly subtle subtle beast style yeah so the yeah so we're we're really excited about that and uh, really expanding our brand um when uh, when the website launches we're gonna have a lot of uh interesting information and subtle beast uh related activities and events coming up so uh definitely stay tuned and uh Keep your eyes out for SubtleBeastPodcast.com, uh, and we'll definitely put something out on social media when it's launched and keep everybody in the loop, but uh, we just wanted to bring that to the forefront and let everybody know that uh, a really, really amazing site is going to be out real, real soon. Super excited about it, folks. Totally. So, having said that, uh, I- I'm rip-roaring and ready to go dive into tonight's uh, topic, so... As everybody can see from uh, from the title, we're going to be jumping into a topic called the Flatwoods Monster tonight. Um, it's a really, really interesting and fun story uh, to sit back and relax and listen to. But one thing that we're going to have to do, we're going to have to go back in time a little bit. Now, Subtle Beast has done a podcast on um, the topic Project Blue Book. Um, which has recently been in in the uh, in the eyes of the media on the History Channel. They actually did a great uh, whole series on. Yeah, whole series. Um, I'm not sure if it's done with. They kind of left it open ended. Uh, I didn't hear whether there's going to be an extension to it or anything, but uh, it was a really great series. So having said that, for tonight's topic, what we're going to do uh, briefly, we're going to give a synopsis of uh, what project. Blue Book did, and throughout the UFO and alien community, what what were the things that they were studying? And the reason we're going to do that real quick is because Project Blue Book actually investigated the Flatwood Monster, Flatwood Monster incident. So we want to tie it all in. Uh, if you've listened to that podcast before, don't worry. We're just going to quickly give a brief overview and and tie it in. So uh, without further ado, we're going to kick it off. So here we go. Now, if you're unfamiliar, real quickly, Project Blue Book was one of a series of systematic studies of unidentified flying objects conducted by the United States Air Force. It started in 1952, the third study of its kind, following Project Sign, 1947, and Project Grudge, 1949. A termination order was given for the study in December 1969, and all activity under its auspicious officially ceased in January 1970. Project Blue Book had two goals. The number one was to determine if UFOs were a threat to national security, and number two, to scientifically analyze UFO-related data. Now, 
no you this is the claims that they're making after doing some of their studies is this number one no ufo reported investigated and evaluated by the air force was ever an indication of a threat to our national security of course we know they're going to state that number two there was no evidence submitted to or discovered by the Air Force that the sightings categorized as unidentified represented any technological developments or principles beyond the range of modern scientific knowledge. Which we also know is crap. Of course. And number three, there was no evidence indicating the sightings categorized as unidentified were extraterrestrial vehicles. Which, number three, that's three strikes you're out. We know that those are all bogus claims. It goes along with uh, the air balloons and you know, swamp gas. Swamp gas. Now, by the time Project Blue Book ended, it had collected 12,618 UFO reports and, con- and concluded that most of them were misidentifications of natural phenomenon or conventional aircraft, according to the National Reconnaissance Office. A number of the reports could be explained by flights of formerly secret reconnaissance planes, the U-2 and the A-12. Now, a small percentage of UFO reports were classified as unexplained. Even after a stringent analysis, the UFO reports were archived and are available under the Freedom of Information Act. But get this, the names and the personnel information of all the witnesses have been redacted. So you can file an Information Act, but you're going to get a page that has a lot of blacked out lines on it. And you're going to read maybe a little bit of the story. Right. It's going to look like uh, the rest of the government reports that you see on TV. Right, right, right. So, let's see. Now, the, uh, the public the United States Air Force UFO studies were the first initiated under Project SIGN, and this took place at the end of 1947. Now, SIGN was officially inconclusive regarding the cause of the sightings. However, according to U.S. Air Force Captain Edward J. Ruppelt, SIGN's initial intelligence estimate, writ- written in the late summer of 1948, concluded that flying saucers were real craft were not made by either the Soviet Union or the United States, and were likely extraterrestrial origin. This estimate was forwarded to the Pentagon, but subsequently ordered destroyed by General Hoyt Vandenberg, the United States Air Force Chief of Staff, citing lack of physical proof. Vandenberg subsequently dismantled Project Sign. Now, I mean, that's just your classic cover-up right there. Yep. That got, I mean, they launched an entire division and then came back to the Pentagon and said, it's it's true. Everything that uh, that we've been looking into is true. And they said, destroy all your evidence. Right, right. It's like, I mean, that that's just typical. I mean, they could have handed them the smoking gun and they had not enough evidence. So right. Just absolutely ridiculous. So, now... Project Sign was succeeded at the end of 1948 by Project Grudge, uh, which then later became Project Blue Book, and it was criticized of having a debunking mandate. Ruppelt referred to the era of Project Grudge as the dark ages of early United States Air Force UFO investigation. Grudge concluded that all UFOs were natural phenomenon or other misinterpretations, although it also stated that 23% of the reports could not be explained. That's a lot of percent. That's a huge percent. So what what what's what we need to go into and discuss, we mentioned uh, the Captain Ruppelt, Captain Edward J. Ruppelt, um, he was one of the, the head investigators on Project Blue Book, and he was definitely down there with the uh, the Flatwoods incident. So, uh, Steve, why don't you give us a little background on Captain? According to Captain Edward J. Ruppelt, 
By the end of 1951, several high-ranking, very influential United States Air Force generals were so dissatisfied with the state of the U.S. Air Force UFO investigations that they dismantled Project Grudge and replaced it with Project Blue Book in March of 1952. One of these men was General Charles P. Cabell. Another important change came when General William Garland joined Cabell's staff. Garland thought the UFO question deserved serious scrutiny because he himself had witnessed a UFO. Wow. So we have that coming from generals now in the Air Force. I mean, these are the guys that are going to be the most into it, the the guys that want to investigate it the most because this guy actually saw a UFO. Right. So Rappel was the first head of the project. He was an experienced airman, having been decorated for his efforts with the Army Air Corps during World War II, and having afterward earned an aeronautics degree. He officially coined the term unidentified flying object, which we talk about all the time, UFOs, right? to replace the many terms such as flying saucer, flying disc, and so on. The military had previously used all of these terms. Ruppelt thought that unidentified flying object was a more neutral and accurate term. Rappelt resigned from the Air Force some years later and wrote the book, The Report on Unidentified Flying Objects, which described the study of UFOs by the United States Air Force from 1947 to 1955. American scientist Michael Swords wrote that Rappelt would lead the last genuine effort to analyze UFOs. Wow. That's crazy. And it... I like how that he uh, he officially coined the term unidentified flying object because flying saucer, uh, there was a pilot, I think it was back in the, oh, I want to say probably around World War One era was flying a plane and he saw all these craft flying really, really like, supersonic faster than anything that he's ever seen. And they asked him to describe it and he said, well, it's like if you had a cup and saucer and you turn the saucer upside down. So that's how they came up with the flying saucer. That's, that's what he thought he saw. That's a great way to explain it. That's what it looks like. Sure. Oh, totally. Let's see. Where, where are we at? Well, we're still with Rupelt here. So um, here, uh, let's see. Now, each, each U.S. Air Force base had a Blue Book officer to collect UFO reports and forward them to Rupelt. Now, during most of Rupelt's tenure, he and his team were authorized to interview any and all military personnel who witnessed UFOs and were not required to follow the chain of command. This unprecedented authority underlined the seriousness of Blue Book's investigation. And right there, you can see, I mean, that's where the rogue deep state comes off. They break off from the original government, telling them, you don't have a chain of command. You report to us and us only. You gather information. Anyone stops you, you let us know. I mean, that's deep state. That's, you know, dark government right there. And it's the very beginning of it. Yeah, it really is. Now... Another brilliant man, astronomer, Dr. J. Allen Hynek, which I'm sure many of you have heard of, and even if if you saw Project Blue Book, of course, was the scientific consultant of the project. As he had been with Project Sign and Grudge, he worked for the project up to its termination and initially created the categorization, which had been extended and is known today as Close Encounters. He was, he was a pronounced skeptic when he started, but said his feelings changed to more wavering skepticism during the research after encountering a minority of UFO reports he thought were unexplainable. So there he is. He's checking it out, an astronomer, and he can't even explain what's going on. Yeah, and what's great about Hynek was 
going into it, he was a skeptic and just like, hey, we'll let the evidence prove for itself. And, uh, well, anybody that knows about Project Blue Book knows how this turned out. Now, Ruppelt and Heineck and others presented the best evidence. They included movie footage that had been collected by Blue Book investigators. After spending 12 hours reviewing six years of data, the Robertson panel concluded that most UFO reports had a good explanation and that all could be explained with further investigation, which they deemed not worth the effort. So... Here you have them say, oh, you don't have enough information for this to be uh, deemed worthy. You definitely need further investigation, but it's not worth it to us for you to do it. Classic just shut down, you know, just quieting people. If you if you pull the funding, well, Tesla knows how that goes. <laughs> yeah. Now, in their final report, they, dist- they stressed that low-grade, unvariable UFO reports were overloading the intelligence channel with the risk of missing a general conventional threat to the U.S. Well, we all know that was just BS cover. Therefore, they recommended the Air Force to de-emphasize the subject of UFOs and embark on a debunking campaign to lessen public interest. There it is. They suggested debunkery through mass media, including Walt Disney Productions, and using psychologists, astronomers, and celebrities to ridicule the phenomenon and put forward terrible explanations. Well, they thought were good, terrible to us. Furthermore, civilian UFO groups should be watched because of their potentially gratefully influence on mass thinking. Steve, we better watch our backs. They might come to for us. They might. The apparent irresponsibility and the possible use of such groups for subversive purpose should be kept in mind. Well, if you ever hear us talking about anything other than what you know to be what Subtle Beast believes... We've been infiltrated. Yeah, I can't imagine us coming out and saying, there's uh, great scientific research that shows answers to all of these questions. Yeah, absolutely. Now, let's see. In conclusion of many researchers, that the Robertson panel was recommending controlling public opinion through a propaganda of official propaganda and spying. They also believe that these recommendations helped shape Air Force policy regarding UFO study, not only immediately afterward, but also in present day. There is evidence that the panel's recommendations were carried out at least two decades after its conclusions were issued. In December 1953, Joint Army-Navy Air Force Regulation Number 146 made it a crime for military personnel to discuss classified UFO reports with an unauthorized person. Violators faced up to two years in prison and fines of $250,000. And you know that's still in place today. Oh, sure. Oh, yeah. I mean, now typically if something's classified, it'll become unclassified in 25 years. But the UFO reports... They stay under lock and key. Yeah, they got they. What happened? Well, I mean, what happened here is they got panel after panel. They had uh, program after program, three programs in a row. All of them showed that. I mean, a quarter of all of these twelve thousand issues were really unidentifiable. Right, and in the case of Project Blue Book, uh, some of them were actually uh, they did know what it was. But they had; they were told you've got to give some other type of explanation. So, but that takes us that that that's our synopsis on Project Blue Book. So we're done with that. So we're going to be able to jump into the Legend of Flatwoods, which was investigated by Project Blue Book. So, as the dog days of summer gradually give way to the crisp chill of autumn, 
September 12th might seem to be just another typical day. For people of, of West Virginia, the date tickles back uh, the back of their mind like a teasing memory. Then I recall an eerie significance attached to the state is what the locals thought. When an event also too bizarre to be real rocked the small town of Flatwoods in central West Virginia. September 12th, 2002 marks the 50th anniversary of a reporting sighting of an alien creature in the hills of Braxton County. Some dismissed it as a hoax, but those were, but those who were there actually at the time have a different perspective. The event has had profound impact. As a result of it, Flatwoods would earn the nickname the home of the green monster. The frightening tale would be told time and time again by those who witnessed the events and friends and neighbors would speak of it in whispers. The stories would live on, passed down through generations, becoming part of an oral folklore that is so unique to mountain culture and the heritage. Uh, you got me. I'm interested. Yeah. I mean, just from the get-go, uh, that's what we've got. I mean, let's, let's, do- let's go a little deeper. Steve, take us away a little bit. So today we tackle a terrifying tale of an alien encounter that goes by many names. The Braxton County Monster, the Sutton Monster, the Green Monster, and the Phantom of Flatwoods, just to name a few. Growing up as kids in nearby Kanawahu County, they had always heard the tale told using the Braxton County Monster moniker. So that's what they'll keep using here to avoid confusion. The story goes that in the evening of September 12, 1952, Seven witnesses saw a light from the sky land in the hills outside the town of Flatwoods, West Virginia. And when they went to investigate, they they came up upon a being which frightened them to their very core. Well, that would definitely frighten anybody, I would think. Tell us about the night of the sighting. Right. Now, even contemporary reports made within days of the incident vary in some details of actual event. But most agree roughly on the following points. Around 7.15, several local boys were playing football at a nearby elementary school. They noticed a bright light streak across the sky and over a hill, seeming to touch down on the property of a farm owned by Mr. Bailey Fisher. The boys then raced to the home of Kathleen May, a local beautician and mother of Edison and Fred, possibly two of the boys playing football to report their sighting of the UFO. The group recruited a few more local boys, including 17-year-old National Guardsman Eugene Lemon and his dog. The group now made up of Kathleen May Eugene, Lemon, Neil Nunley, Teddy Neal, Edison May, Fred May, Ronnie Schaefer, and Tommy Heyer, headed outside of town and up to the hills towards the farm. Now, upon cresting the hill to the ridge, they were engulfed in a horrible mist and spotted a pulsing red light emitting from a ball-shaped object hovering just above the ground. Gene's dog growled at something to the left side, where whomever was holding the flashlight immediately pointed the beam. What the light fell upon was terrible to behold. A large creature, between 7 to 12 feet tall, stood hovering next to a nearby oak tree. It appeared to be wearing some sort of green armor or black shaped like spade from a playing from a deck of cards. Its blood red head and bright glowing eyes. Some some of the witnesses reported seeing two claw like hands near the creature's head, one of which may have been holding a device. Upon seeing the group, 
the being let out a shrill hiss and started towards them in a slow, gliding motion. The group gripped with terror, ran head down the hill back to town, whereupon they immediately called Braxton County Sheriff Robert Carr. The sheriff was not at his station in nearby Sutton because he had been called out to investigate a plane crash reported by Woodrow Eagle, who had also seen a light in the sky disappear into the mountains along Elk River, south of Gassaway. Now, by the time Sheriff Carr was able to make it to Flatwoods, local newspaperman A. Stuart Lee of the Braxton Democrat was also on the scene. While the entire group of witnesses were obviously shaken, Gene worked up the nerve to lead a gun-toting posse back to the scene to investigate. The craft and creature were gone. All that remained was a faint sulfuric odor. Some track marks in the grass and some oily residue along with bits of black rubber-like substance. In the aftermath of the event, several members of the group described suffering from irritation and swelling of the nose and throat, followed by vomiting and convulsions for another few weeks. These were said to be symptoms of exposure to mustard gas and were attributed to the mist surrounding the area the craft and creature had been spotted in. Whatever had happened, it had clearly made an impact, both emotionally and psychologically, on the witnesses. That is a crazy UFO spotting. That totally is. I mean, here you have, you have what, seven, eight different people and a dog. And, uh, yeah, one of them being an adult. Yeah. I mean, right there, I mean, you, you've got a good case for just about anything. You almost got a full jury right there. Right. You got seven different eyewitness accounts of the same exact thing right so it if we can't trust their eyewitness then we can't trust anybody as an eyewitness i would think i mean they try and come up with some types of possible explanations though right steve yeah ufo investigators gary barker who actually grew up in braxton county and naturalist ivan sanderson both went to the flatwoods to research the events of september 12th with sanderson arriving as early as september 18th they explored the site, they interviewed witnesses, and wrote reports of their findings that were later published. They both concluded that the group had encountered an extraterrestrial craft and its occupant. In the case of Sanderson's 36-page report, he states that at least five objects came over traveling in a straight line from northwest to southeast. Several of the crafts crashed and were never recovered. But one craft landed outside Flatwoods, and its occupant was able to exit the ship while wearing a protective suit before the craft disintegrated. Perfect. Yeah, those are professionals coming to investigate. Sure. Yeah. Uh, uh, we're definitely on their side. But of course, and then, but you're always going to have to have like some type of skeptical approach. Why don't you continue on with that? So the first goal when looking at a skeptical approach uh, is looking at it critically. Look at the event critically and determine if the event in question actually occurred. Uh, in this instance, it seems reasonable to surmise that this did actually occur. There were seven people there. Right. One of them being an adult. Everybody's telling the same story. So it seems like this event happened. Right. There was definitely something in the skies over West Virginia that night. And a group of seven people did go up a hill and get the fright of their lives. The happenstance style of the group's formation does not seem to fit the pattern of a hoax. Uh, the next task is to see if the group's interpretation of what they saw that night 
namely an alien being in its craft, is the best explanation given for the known case. Okay. So he's just gathering information, making sure everybody's stories match up, and uh, they're just gathering their intel so that they can make one decision or another, right? Right. Well, it seems like chronologically, the first thing that needs to be explained is the sighting of something in the sky, I would think. It's important to remember that the sighting took place between Kenneth Arnold's report of seeing unidentified craft from his plane, dubbed by the media as flying saucers, and the eve of the space race between the United States and the Soviet Union. Now, people were looking to the heavens expecting to see something more than ever before. Now, a meteor overhead was indeed reported that same night in at least three states, West Virginia, Pennsylvania, and Maryland. So, that's... There's no argument there. There was meteors in. The, there was going to be a meteor in the air, and possibility of um, you know the space race going on. Now, since the subject was sighted prior to Sputnik's one launch in 1957, it's unlikely that the craft was a terrestrial rocket launched from Earth. Now, however, the assumption that there were five ships flying in formation is based on the idea that they were relatively low to the ground. Another interpretation is that one meteor entered Earth's atmosphere, glowing red hot as it was heated by friction from the air and was seen across the entire region. Due to the lack of frame of of reference, it was thought to be much lower to the ground than it actually was. Thus, the downed airplane reported by Woodrow Eagle may have been the same object spotted in Flatwoods by the boys playing football. I would have to think that it was. I would have to... I mean, yeah... uh, one and the same, but this is where I kind of have a problem with some of the some of the the, the skeptical thoughts of of the of it being a meteor or even a da- downed airplane. Because in typical subtle beast style, we dig and we dig and we dig till we think that we've got enough information to come forward with a show. So what we've uncovered, though, when uh, Project Blue Book was investigating this topic. When they descended upon the scene where everybody had claimed that they had seen the alien and the mist and, you know, everything scary that night, they noticed that the tops of the trees were all broken off and burned at the top and kind of like in a downward motion. So let's just entertain for a second that the skeptics are right, that it's a meteor. Okay, great. The meteor came down, broke the trees and set fire to the ground and the trees Okay, where's the meteor? Okay, you don't have that. Okay. So, what about the airplane that that was reported going down? Because uh, where's, where's the wreckage? If it was flying that low, hit those trees, that fuselage would have snapped in half. There would have been evidence everywhere. And the sheriff was investigating it immediately. Exactly. So, right now we have... Th- we have them right where we want them. They're saying, okay, it's this meteor and it's an, or it's an airplane. Great. Like you would say to us, where's your physical evidence? Where's yours? But, of course, they never have to answer for any of that kind of stuff. Right. If you were going into the woods and you were looking at this scene and you see these trees snapped, the first thing you would do is kind of, kind of put the trajectory of whatever it was that was falling from the sky or crashing into this uh, wooded field And you would look at where it was supposed to land, and then you would look for whatever it was that landed there. Exactly. Exactly. Nobody found it. Nobody found anything. But but what else was out there that that people were trying to argue with that that wasn't right or 
Right. There was there was another thing. There was another piece of evidence that they all saw, and that was this um, this mist. So there's this mist uh, when they went up there. The seven people were going to see what happened, and they walked into this mist. And that's when they saw the flashing red light and the orb, the glowing ball. And they couldn't explain when the investigators were asking them about, about the mist, why, why it was there. So if, if it was a craft that had just traveled interstellarly, if there was five crafts up there and one of them actually came down and was a downed ET, if you thought about it and this red hot craft came crashing down through our atmosphere which you've seen you know the videos of the shuttle coming down and it turns red hot sure and it's down and it's in this forest uh you know crashed through the trees and caught more fire actually and it's now on the ground our atmosphere the humidity within our atmosphere reacting with that molten hot red uh, metal is going to create a steam or some type of mist around it. And also the people that went up to investigate this became nauseous and started vomiting immediately and were actually sick for three to four weeks after witnessing this craft crashing into the forest. So what I'm thinking is if this craft did interstellarly travel came through the Van Allen belts, crashing through our atmosphere, it was probably radioactive. Definitely, because whatever planet this creature or extraterrestrial may have came from, even their own breathable atmosphere might be might be poisonous to us. Maybe even their skin could be poisonous to us. Maybe that's why they are always found with some protective covering or the hood that looked like the Ace of Spades. Uh there's just there's just too much information, but yeah, Steve's right. If it's coming down, it, I mean, if it's coming to Earth, yeah, a hundred thousand miles out is still the Van Allen belts. They're kind of be coming through there, coming like a bat out of you know what into our atmosphere, and apparently crashed. Which I'm not so sure if if if, a, if an extraterrestrial craft at that time or at any time that can travel interstellarly is going to come into our atmosphere and crash. Now the Flatwoods incident took place in 1952 and from the research we've done, um, Nullis air force base in 47 was able to have a technology of a direct energy weapon that they had been developing ever since the, the UFO topic started getting, uh, into, everyday life which started with the the dropping of the atomic bomb when when we dropped the atomic bomb i mean if you believe in the multi-dimensional theory we might have done a whole lot of damage more damage in another dimension than we did to our own so these interdimensional beings or interstellar beings they're like oh no the humans have learned how to split the atom they don't they they don't own the earth the earth belongs to all so now they're investigating to make sure that we don't destroy the earth. And now we're seeing these craft and our, and our advanced military at the time, direct energy weapon. So from many stories that I've read and listened to those craft didn't get shot or didn't crash. They were brought down so that we could capture the craft and possibly the occupants inside, right? The A-bomb was August 6th of 1945. And during that time we were experimenting with, pulse beams of energy that we were using as defense in the United States at the time. So anything flying over U.S. air was subject to us 
using these direct energy weapons, which would scramble the electronics, you know. Sure. It would make it would make a, a good case for any downing of a craft. So if these ETs didn't know what our technology was, flew into our airspace, we shoot this uh, direct energy laser at them, it could very easily have brought down the Flatwoods monster. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, what the Air Force was prompted uh, into a, a UFO inquiry as part of an initiative called Project Blue Book that we were talking about earlier. Um, now, since that time in September 12, 1952, the Flatwoods monster has not hissed at boys in a little village of Flatwoods, West Virginia. Um, but uh, one thing that I was well, I that we were talking with, I forgot to mention, uh, was uh, the uh, the sketches, the artists' oh, renditions. Yeah. Uh, each of the each of the people, the seven or eight, uh, you know, the mom and the boys playing football and all that. They were they were interviewed separately, directly following the incident uh, by Project Blue Book and by investigators and by newspapers and the Men in Black. Uh, yeah, and the Men in Black and uh, MJ Twelve. And they all had sketches done. Now, when each of the artists sat with each of these individuals, when they got back together, they all shared what these representation of what they saw. And they all matched identically. Now, if you're going to get scared in the woods and you're all going to think that you have seen something different. I heard this. You saw that. The lights were this. But if you all come back with the same drawing, I mean, that's that's pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing. And also, the investigators tried to say that the creature could have been an owl, a uh, normal barn owl, right. uh, sitting on a perch. But each one of the pictures, and we'll put the pictures up, each one of the pictures clearly depicts a being that was not a barn owl. Yeah, they were trying to say that it was a barn owl and that since it was at night, it was getting ready to hunt. So it was flying at them with the talons out and saying that it was making this crazy attack towards them. Now, if anybody's been to rural West Virginia, and I have been, I drove cross country and drove all through the Appalachians. People there are typically uh, very outdoorsy, like to hunt a lot and can probably identify just about any animal in their region. So for these boys growing up hunting with their dads and, uh, you know, even this mom, I'm sure she grew up hunting too. If they came upon an owl in a fog, they'd be like, there's a barn owl in, in the fog. <laughs> right. It wouldn't scare them. Yeah. But like, okay, oh, don't worry. Don't worry. Don't freak out. My flashlight just went up on the owl. They wouldn't have created some monster with a spade head and, uh, you know, what? they had nothing to gain. Right, and all of the all of the drawings show kind of like the the green armor on the outside of it, uh, just the height of it alone. I mean, it was a, feet. It was a big. It was a big being. Yeah, I mean now nowadays people grin about it, and uh, they take them. They take monster souvenir money from uh, hundreds of tourists every week, but it scared plenty of people back then, and including the eyewitnesses, which were you know six boys, age ten. 17, a dog, and a mom. But if you take it one step further and you think about this, and you've been following Subtle Beast for since we've been up and running, and you've listened to a majority of our podcasts, we have our own little theory going on right now. And, uh, well, this took place, the Flatwoods Monster, in, in rural West Virginia. Now, we've talked about another topic in the past called the Mothman. Now, coincidentally, the Mothman took place in West Virginia. And in West Virginia folklore, the Mothman is a creature rep 
reportedly seen in Point Pleasant, West Virginia. And it was seen in the area from November 12th, 1966 to December 15th, 1967. So that's almost 14 years to the day of the spotting of the Flatwoods monster. And if you look at any depiction or artist rendition of the Mothman, it's depicted in all black, almost looks like it's in flight with red eyes beaming at you and coming right directly for you, even at the, the windshields of people's cars. Making that hissing sound. Yeah, and nobody was ever sure what it was. Now, the first newspaper reported published in Point Pleasant registered date November 16, 1966, it titled, Couple Sees Man-Sized Bird Creature or Something. Yeah. So there we have Flatwoods Monster. It could have possibly been an owl. 14 years later, almost to the day, the Mothman is seen in Point Pleasant, West Virginia, giving all types of prophecies, warnings, what have you. And the depiction is almost identical. It's too close to, not, to just be a coincidence there. Sure. So if, if you're not familiar with the Mothman, by all means, go back and check out our episode about that. We cover that in its entirety. It is a, it's, a, it's a great episode, and it's, it's definitely one for the books, and we're certainly proud of it. So I guess what it comes down to is the Flatwoods Monster. Were all these people right? Or is the government right? Or is the Flatwoods Monster really the Mothman? I guess that's up to you, right? I guess. Like always, we'll just deliver the information, but uh, we'll let you be the judge of it. So yeah, this uh, this was a fun episode. Well, not 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 too long of an episode, but I think that we got the information across. Uh, we we discovered every or we discussed everything on the Flatwoods in basically its entirety. So there's really no need in. Any other fluff or filler, I don't think. Right. I don't remember or I didn't come across anything on the Flatwoods Monster uh, that tied it to the Mothman the way that, that you and I did, Fultzen. No, no, no. Yeah, that that's that's me and Steve's theory right now. Um, now, if other people have, have had that theory, we didn't come across it. But just the description of the Flatwoods Monster alone, it, it led us back to the Mothman. So... We kind of were breaking down our investigation, kind of like in the steps that we were talking about earlier. So we were just like, well, first we have to figure out, well, what year was the Mothman? This, that, and the other thing. And everything was leading towards our hypothesis. West Virginia, same, almost to the, the day, 14 years later, the descriptions, everything. I highly suggest listening to the Mothman episode. Definitely, definitely. And uh, so Steve and I are really on a crusade right now to uh, really get our podcast out and uh, shared with more people day in and day out. Um, we'd be very grateful if you could help us spread the word, um, share share our Facebook page with, with your friends list or even on your own uh, personal wall. If you have Instagram, we're out on Instagram, like us, share us, spread the word and uh you know, help me and Steve spread the uh, the message of what's real and what we all believe in. And because uh, the bigger this podcast gets, the more fun and exciting things that uh, we have in the future. And we just, we need your help. Yeah, give us a review. Give us a five-star review. Yeah, five-star reviews on iTunes or any platform that you listen to us on. We're on iTunes. We're on Google Play. We're on Spotify. iHeartRadio. iHeartRadio. We're on uh 
basically anywhere you can listen to a podcast. So and coming soon, our own our own subtlebeastpodcast.com. Subtlebeastpodcast.com where it'll be a one-stop shop for everything Subtle Beast. Uh, we hope you enjoyed our episode tonight. Uh, maybe not as long as typical, but short, sweet, and to the point and full of information. I had a good time, Steve. I had a great time, Foltz. So did I, and I'm looking forward to next time. But until then, I'm Foltz. And I'm Steve. And we'll see you next time. Take care of one another. Bye-bye. <laughs>